Hello and welcome to the Better Human Podcast. My name is Adam Wagner and today I'm joined by David Allen Green, a lawyer and commentator, and we're going to be talking about the Bill of Rights Bill. We're going to be discussing the Bill of Rights 2022, or the Bill of Rights Bill, as we should probably call it. Um, we, we thought we we should start with the Human Rights Act and just talk about about what it is, where it came from, what it was like um, to to what it was like before the Human Rights Act came into force. So, um, do you want to start, David? Yes, the Human Rights Act was passed in 1998. But it didn't actually take legal effect until October 2000, which more or less was a period I was a trainee solicitor. And so I was able to see from the bottom of the legal profession looking up how the Act was intended to take effect, how it was understood to be taking effect, the extent to which it was just seen as something which was different or something which was not going to have a huge impact. Uh, but at the time, the, the, the impression which was given by a lot of people was that this was a fundamental change. Uh, the Law Society sent all solicitors a blue pamphlet glossed up to put on your desk to tell you that important new rights were being created by the Human Rights Act. So the impression, certainly from, from, from certain people, was that this was an important piece of legislation. It was fundamental in its significance it was going to change things and so you had city law firms such as the one where I was training looking at all the areas of law in which they practiced from insolvency to property law to see whether the the, the human rights act was going to make this profound difference it was whether it was actually going to change everything and so it came into force. So it, it was brought, let, let's just go a little bit backwards. And for those yeah. listening who um, are interested in the wider story, there's a, I've recorded a brilliant podcast with the unfortunately um, now passed on Jonathan Cooper and very much alive and kicking Francesca Klug. Um, it's episode six of this podcast. You talked about the sort of political history of the Human Rights Act. But for, for our purposes, it was a manifesto commitment for New Labour in the 1997 election it was um, passed in 1998, and then it came into force October 2000, as David's already mentioned. Um, but when it came into force, it, it wasn't. That it, it's important to realise that the the political um, unease with the Human Rights Act didn't begin um, with David Cameron in 2006. It really goes back um, almost straight after it was brought in by New Labour. Yes, uh, the legislation was brought in. Uh not only for the manifesto commitment, but it also actually provided support to the government on other things it was doing. There was the Good Friday Agreement, where part of the Good Friday Agreement, which was put into text, provided for expressly that the, there would be local effect of the European Convention on Human Rights. Anybody in Northern Ireland should be able to go to a court in Northern Ireland and rely on their convention rights. There was also the Regulation of Investigatory Powers Act, which was brought in alongside the Human Rights Act, which, which was to provide a basis provided for by law for interventions, interceptions and surveillance. And also the Competition Act at the time was brought in so to be consistent with human rights arguments. And so a lot of laws were brought in at the same time with the Human Rights Act. It wasn't just there as a, a sort of on its own. And it was controversial and people were worried that it was going to go too far. And the, the legislation which actually did come out of the legislative process took account of, of a lot of these concerns. And it was, in the words of one eminent lawyer, an elegant compromise between the sovereignty of parliament and the need to put the ECHR on a basis, a directly effective basis in English law. And what, what was the... Why was it a compromise? So what can, what can't a court do under the Human Rights Act that it say that a, a constitutional court in other jurisdictions might be able to do? Well, the concern was, of course, that parties would be able to rely on the ECHR in the same way they could rely upon EU law, or as, as they could do at the time, in the sort of fact-to-tame situations. And so that you could rely on this European instrument although the European Convention of Human Rights as opposed to European Union Treaty, but you could rely on that and somehow attack primary legislation. 
And so on the face of the Human Rights Act, it was made explicit that it couldn't do that. The most you could ever do was to get a court to declare that a statutory provision was, was, was incompatible. The court was not to go any further than that. And in a way, the, the Human Rights Act was very mild in how it bit. It just provided a basis for public law that a public authority could not do something which was not, inconsist- which was not consistent with human rights. And it provided a, uh, a, a, a principle of statutory interpretation that, as far as possible, legislation should be interpreted in cons- to be consistent with these convention rights. Uh, but neither of those were sort of uh, that strong. In a way, they didn't go much further than how far the law had developed beforehand. And so it wasn't a strong piece of legislation. And in many ways, it didn't do a lot, but it did enough. It did make a difference. There are things which couldn't have been done but for the Human Rights Act, but it was not a powerful or changing piece of legislation. It was the elegant compromise. Yeah, well, well, it didn't change the constitutional makeup of the United Kingdom. That, that, that I think is clear because it didn't. It retained Parliament as the as the lawmaker, um, and only effectively with, with any prime piece of primary legislation, all the court could do was advise Parliament that a piece of legislation um, breach was in breach of human rights obligations. But but then it was left to Parliament to decide whether or not to do anything about it. But, but in actual fact, the reality is that when the courts are in the roughly, I think it's about 30 times, or maybe it's 40 times, courts have made declarations of incompatibility under the Human Rights Act. Parliament has generally done something about it, not because it feels um, hamstrung um, to have to do it, although I guess there might be a, a, an element of looking to the European Court of Human Rights and, and wondering whether if they don't do anything, the European Court of Human Rights will, will impose an international law obligation for them to do something. But ultimately, I think the way the Parliament has seen declarations of incompatibility is a helpful check um, to make sure that the legislation complies with human rights law. And cleverly, from the government's point of view, it didn't make the declaration something you had an incentive to try and get in as a litigant. Because if the court did decide there was a declaration, that it needed to make a declaration of incompatibility, uh, that didn't actually affect the law as regards the parties. The court still had to apply the law which it was declaring to be inconsistent or incompatible. And so these declarations of incompatibility weren't necessarily great prizes to achieving litigation. There were things for the court to signal to Parliament, come on, you need to think about this and, and have the law in a more consistent way. So this is what I always find quite quite uh, odd about those who really, really dislike the Human Rights Act and also those who are really, really championing it because it wasn't that strong a piece of legislation. It never was intended to be so. It was intended to be relatively mild just to have effect in particular marginal cases. I mean, I, I've just been looking at a document which I, I look at every now and then, which is the white paper for the Human Rights Bill um, in October 1997 called Rights Brought Home, um, which I've always thought was an excellent slogan, which you'd expect of Tony Blair. Well, it was just it was the year after the 1996 football where we're coming home. And so it tied in very nicely yeah. with that. Yeah, for, for football and rights were coming home. Yes. Um, and at paragraph 2.3, 13, they, 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 they go through the arguments for whether or not to have a strong, I, I think it's called strong judicial review. I think that's the, that's the sort of a American term for it, as in the allowance of a court to strike down legislation. It says the, And they say the government has reached the conclusion the court should not have the power to set aside primary legislation, past or future, on the ground of incompatibility with the convention. This conclusion arises from the importance which the government attaches to parliamentary sovereignty. In this context, parliamentary sovereignty means that Parliament is competent to make any law on any matter of its choosing, and no court may question the validity of any act that it passes. In enacting legislation, Parliament is making decisions about important matters of public policy. The authority to make those decisions derives from a democratic mandate. Members of Parliament in the House of Commons possess such a mandate because they are elected, accountable and representative. To make provisions in the bill for the court to set aside acts of parliament would confer on the judiciary a general power over the decisions of parliament, which under our present constitutional arrangement they do not possess, and would likely on occasion on occasions to draw the judiciary into serious conflict with parliament. 
There is no evidence to, evidence to suggest that they desire this power, nor that the public wish them to have it. Certainly, this government has no mandate mandate for any such change. The court, yeah, the government did not intend this to be a fundamental piece of legislation, and they didn't do anything which, which, on the face of the bill, on the face of Human Rights uh, Bill, Human Rights Act, was there anything in there which was supposed to have a dramatic effect? It was, as I said, a mild piece of legislation which did enough to get the articles of the convention into domestic law so they could be relied upon by a court in certain exceptional circumstances. But something then happened which made the Act very unpopular with the press and isn't actually on the face of the Act. And you know what I mean. I mean the development of privacy law after the Act took effect. I thought you were going to say something different, actually, but we'll we'll come to that afterwards. So go on, talk about about privacy law and what, what existed before and what existed after. There was a case in the old House of Lords. I think it's after the Act was passed, but before it took effect, or thereabouts. I don't know the exact dates, but the, 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 the case is called Rainwright. And in that case, the House of Lords expressly stated there was no general law of privacy in English law. And they did so in a very plain way. It... it, it, it Reading that judgment, you would not think there is any scope for the development of of a law of privacy in English law by judicial development. And then the Act took effect. And then in a sequence of cases which were, quote, cleverly selected or carefully selected, judgment by judgment, we went from supercharging the equitable doctrine of confidentiality to creating a cause of action which was called misuse of private information, which within about 10 years became a tort from, from, from non-existing at all. So it was actually a cause of action which gave you know an automatic cause of action. And there was no legislative support for that on the face of the, the, the Act. There's no provision of the Human Rights Act, which says there shall now be a tort of misuse of private information. It was developed in inverted commas, which means, of course, invented uh, by the courts. And it was done in a way which was informed or influenced by Article 8 of the Convention on Privacy becoming part of, of English law. And so although the Act itself was on the face of it mild, it actually brought in the most significant new tort for a very, very long time. It's difficult to think of another tort which actually is of that fundamental value which the courts have developed from scratch and did so within about 10 to 15 years. And quite soon, we were getting super injunctions, uh, not just mere injunctions, but super injunctions where even the fact there was an injunction was, was private information. And all of this happened and the press just had no counterbalance to it because the courts didn't develop Article 10, the right to freedom of expression, in any way the same. And so that, I think, was a thing which made the press, the media hostile to Human Rights Act, as well as the terrorism cases, which I think you're probably going to mention. Yeah. Uh, uh, And no British journalist, no British editor, no British publisher could point to the Human Rights Act in a way which an American journalist or editor or publisher could point to the Bill of Rights in America and say, look, we've got freedom of expression. No, they couldn't. And this is where I think things went wrong. The courts were too too ambitious for uh, for developing one part of human rights law after the Act took effect and didn't balance it with, with freedom of expression for the press. And as a result... The, the, the press and the media, but then by extension the public, became quite hostile to human rights generally. And this was in the context of the of the terrorism cases, which also made the act unpopular. Yes, so I, I think that's a really interesting point. And, and, and it's ironic because prior to the Human Rights Act, there were a number of important cases in Strasbourg, which were very, very strongly protected our journalists rights and not not just you know any journalist rights but we had the sunday times um case about the thalidomide scandal um and a number of other cases protecting journalist sources and you have the derbyshire case which made it easy to to criticize public bodies which was developed by the courts without any uh, echr incorporated into the domestic law yeah. 
Well, well, well I guess maybe the courts were um, very excited by the right to privacy because it didn't exist in the common law, whereas the, the right to freedom of expression long existed in the common law. Um, but let, let, let's talk about terrorism as well, because the timing was very... Um, was was unfortunate for the Human Rights Act, came into force in October 2020. And by September 2001, the world was hit by the terror attacks um, on 9-11 and then the, the so-called war on terror. Mm-hmm. And the courts all of a sudden were, um, were hitting back because, you know, you, you, I mean, arguably they could have, all of these cases could have come under the common law as well, prevention of torture, that sort of thing. But the... Um, the Belmarsh case about the indefinite detention, that it wasn't um, it wasn't lawful to indefinitely detain without charge terror suspects, um, the control order cases, um, deportation of criminals. And, and, and I, um, you know, I'm, one of my hobbies is collecting negative comments by politicians about the Human Rights Act. But um, within a couple of years of it passing, David Blunkett, the Home, then the Home Secretary, was saying he was fed up of having to deal with a situation where Parliament debates issues and judges overturn them. Mm-hmm. Um, and then even Tony Blair, who was, you know, who, who was 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 the was supposedly the Prime Minister who brought, well, he was the Prime Minister that brought the Human Rights Act in after the 2005 London terrorist bomb, bombings, um, said that. The rules of the game are changing and that sh- it should legal obstacles to deportations arise we will legislate further including if necessary amending the human rights act and i mean i suppose i suppose the important thing the important thing is they never did and they never actually even proposed you're, to do the that of what you say is correct had the incoming labor government waited until after 2001 i don't think the human rights act would have ever been passed i agree i, I think that i think that's right i think that during the war on terror there would have been there would have been too much nervousness about changing the um, changing the rules of the game, as, as Tony Blair would, would have put it. Um, but but the, but the, I suppose it, it it came when it came, um, and it wasn't given the opportunity to bed in publicly. And one of the other interesting things about the history of the human rights sector is there was there was meant to be a concurrent campaign funded by the government to tell people about their rights and to help people understand what the new Human Rights Act meant, but that bit of the proposal was dropped. Um, I think for for many reasons, um, and whether whether or not it would have made a difference, I don't know. But ultimately, what what filled the vacuum was the um, was the press, and particularly the tabloids that were felt they were being prevented from um, reporting on celebrity news, for example, because of the, the the Naomi Campbell case about her being photographed outside of a drug rehabilitation clinic, um, where the court said that was a breach of her right to privacy. Um, so, so the, it was. It was always the Human Rights Act was always in choppy waters, um, but it but it wasn't until the 2010 coalition. So until Labour lost power, that there was a genuine um, political uh, movement. I think to change the Human Rights Act, and at that time, the Conservative government had it had in their manifesto that they were going to replace the Human Rights Act with a Bill of Rights. That was in 2010. <laughs> And I think it's significant just to pause at this point and say 10 years after it had taken effect, 12 years after it had been passed, it was an an unloved piece of legislation. Not even the parents of of the Act, the Labour Party, loved it any longer. The Conservative Party had never loved it. The press did not like it at all. And... Even when in government, the Liberal Democrats, who at the time were supposedly the pro-civil liberties party, were quite lukewarm in, in, in defending it and were actually in government when a Conservative Justice Secretary, uh, Grayling, not on behalf of the government, correct, on behalf of the Conservative Party, put forward uh, a proposals for repealing the Act. I think it was in 2012 uh, or 2013, around that time. And it didn't cause a huge outcry. It was an unloved piece of legislation. And I often think part of the provocation was its very name. It was called the Human Rights Act. It's quite portentous name for a piece of legislation. Uh, had they called it something like the, uh, I don't know, duties of public authorities and principles of statutory interpretation, brackets European Convention of Human Rights and Related Purposes Act, 
1998. I don't think people would have been that upset about it in the way that they are with this sort of very stark human rights act labelling for it. Yeah, I'm not. I'm not sure about that. I think the not the nominative determinism um, uh, theory of legislation. I'm not. I'm just not. I mean, have, having looked at the sort of popularity of the human rights act for quite a long time, and tried to do um, some work on it, it's. I think it's where I've got to on this is it's more the factors that you mentioned before that it wasn't it was really kind of not quite disowned but it was the slightly sort of embarrassed slightly embarrassed parent Labour's approach to the Human Rights Act maybe we we you know with the the, that 1997 sort of roman romantic approach to the constitution was appended by the reality of governing particularly through the, the the war on terror like the other unloved child of the time, the Freedom of Information Act, which also had a really grand title, but yep. because it had very few actual mechanisms in it and didn't have any real bite unless you are very persistent and can wait a decade to get to the tribunal and then to court, uh, that didn't become as controversial because it's relatively easy for public authorities to sidestep their obligations under the Freedom of Information Act. But yeah, there was that spate of legislation before 2001, which which seemed fundamental in its in, in in its nature at the time, which within 10 years was just an unloved child. Yeah. Unloved but, children. But, but but then in the in the meanwhile, the child, uh, I'm gonna I'm gonna extend the metaphor here, the child was growing up um quite in, in quite interesting ways, independently of the government. I mean, maybe the government shouldn't love the Human Rights Act in a way, because maybe it should be a a slightly sort of oppositional effect. It should have an oppositional effect to government, to the executive. Um, and the, the Human Rights Act was being used in interesting and creative ways by lawyers and by judges, not just and by individuals. But not, um, not all just judges. Not all judges. As in that case which you, you and one or two people listening to this will remember, from 10 years ago, it ended now, the Twitter joke trial case which was a case which I was involved in as a solicitor, where there was somebody who made a witticism on social media about blowing up an airport. It was plainly uh, not sincere. It was plainly a joke. But because of a sequence of idiotic events, the person ended up getting charged and then convicted of an offence under the Communications Act for sending something of, 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 of a certain nature. And... I got involved in the appeal and there were two appeals. It was by, by no, three appeals, actually. It was by case stated, which is a really odd process where you take a case from the magistrates or Crown Court to the High Court. And we were before the so-called Divisional Court of, 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 of the High Court, which for some inexplicable reason only has two judges. There is an obvious problem with having two judges on a panel. Uh, and we put a very strong freedom of expression appeal. We, we used a well-known uh, human rights barrister to, to, to put the appeal, and it fell flat. And the two judges, I understand, although this was never publicly stated, disagreed. And so we had the strange situation of having to have the court reconvene, but with a panel of three, just so we could get to get a decision. And we, because uh, a lot of publicity had attached itself to the case by that time, uh, we ended up with Lord Chief Justice uh, Judge in 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 as and that panel. And I knew uh, Lord Judge did not particularly like human rights jurisprudence. He was a bit of a old style common law judge, and so I actually instructed the barrister not to expressly refer to the Human Rights Act or any ECHR provision unless actually asked by the panel and to actually do it as an old style criminal appeal with uh, mens rea and actus reus and point pushing up the common law as it was. And we ended up with a thumping unanimous judgment of, of the uh, High Court written by the Lord, uh, Lord Chief Justice in rousing terms, in defence of freedom of expression, quoting Milton, Orwell and Roosevelt, and as far as my memory tells me, not mentioning the ECHR once. So it wasn't only the government and the press which were uh, not enthusiastic about approaching law from an ECHR perspective, 
a lot of judges weren't either. Yeah, I mean, th- th- there's definitely that in the system. And you do know sometimes that some judges are going to be um, less enthusiastic than others. But I think my experience in, in, in my career, which has sort of tracked um, a, a significant proportion of the time that the Human Rights Act has been enforced, although not all of it, is that as the generation of judges that beget, became judges after the Human Rights Act came into force become the most senior judges, they're, they're much more comfortable with it. Um, and, and there have been a whole range of really interesting um, judgments and, and impacts on people, you know, on, on, on every in every topic, really, from the, the duties of the state to protect life, to the right to protest. I mean, the, the, the Lee case that I was just involved in, the Reclaim These Streets case, was a pure human rights case. Um, the, the duty on police to investigate allegations of sexual violence against women, the, the black cab rapist case, the, um, the it, detention without trial, um, which is a, you know, you'd think is an absolute foundational right in, in, in the United Kingdom, um, but that has relied to an extent on the Human Rights Act um, in, in recent years. Um, the rights of LGBT people, the rights of people being deported into um, situations where they're going to have to um, be forced to have different political views to the ones they actually hold. Um, lots and lots of interesting cases about healthcare, and you know, it, it really just covers the whole of the whole of life in a way. Is your submission then, Adam, that uh, none of those cases or very few of those cases would have been possible without the convention rights being rescheduled to the Human Rights Act? Because yeah, as we've discussed with cases I've, in Derbyshire, the, the courts were quite able to actually bring in human rights jurisprudence for cases before. Yeah, I mean, I mean, I mean, you can the counterfactuals, you know, you could you could argue it in lots of different ways. But I, I don't I don't think um, that I think that, uh, that at least a majority and maybe even the vast majority of the human rights cases, the prominent human rights cases of recent years would probably never have come up and would never have gone anywhere near the courts um, under common law rights. I mean, people, there are, there is such a thing as common law rights, but where are they written down? <laughs> how do you find them? Um, how does an individual, how does a lawyer advise on a new, on an extension of a common law right that doesn't, um, that doesn't yet exist in the jurisdiction? Where do you look? You have to be creative and you have to take a massive risk. You have to take the risk with common law rights and you end up with a judgment which may well be against you and you can't point to anything. No, and you've got nowhere to go. The reason why I'm with you on what you've just said is, for example, the Hillsborough case in respect of the scope of coroner's inquiries, that could only have been opened again because of the Human Rights Act. It could not have been opened again uh, otherwise, and then you wouldn't have had justice justice for those who died because it was only the Human Rights Act which made the duty on the coroner to actually investigate more thoroughly the circumstances of, of of the deaths of the people. No Human Rights Act... Hillsborough would never have been revisited. Exactly. I mean, there are some, and there are some really good examples. You can't, you, you don't need to rely on counterfactuals because sometimes there are cases that have, that have traversed the pre and post Human Rights Act um, situation. So, one of the, I think a really good case to read, cases to read, and the history of case to read is the um, um, gay people in the military cases. So, so there were there were a series of cases through the UK courts, including there was a ruling by Lord Bingham, who ended up being the the most important, perhaps the most important modern judge in terms of the Human Rights Act, the development of the Human Rights Act. But you had court after court saying, you know, in 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 the in the face of horrific facts of uh, people who were who were persecuted, you know, literally persecuted in the in the military, and then chucked out unceremoniously for being gay. Um, and court after court saying, look, this is this is the legislation. There is nothing we can do. It's unfair. It's but it's up to Parliament um, and Parliament refused to do anything. Went to the European Court of Human Rights. The European Court of Human Rights said that is wrong. This is 2010 or so. So that is wrong. Um, case called Smith. The, there is no operational justification. Um, it's discrimination, pure and simple, that the UK should change the law. And the UK then did change the law. And, and then the Human Rights Act came in. Sorry, I think that was that was earlier than 2010, but it was before the Human Rights Act came into force when the case was brought. Um, and if you read those judgments, it really gives you a sense of what the courts were faced with when there was obvious unfairness and no legal remedy available. This, whatever, there was no there was no possibility of the courts being um, creative. And, and obviously, there would there would have been cases where um, common law rights could have been um, relied on, but. 
in the I think in in a very significant proportion of human rights act cases, like the Hillsborough case, like a lot of the cases I've mentioned, you would have got nowhere near. You wouldn't have got past the first hurdle um, unless oh. there'd been a very brave judge and a very wealthy individual ready to go up the go up the courts. The Better Human podcast is supported by your contributions. If you find it useful and interesting, I would really appreciate if you consider giving just $3 a month. That's just over £2 via our Patreon. That's patreon.com forward slash better human. And if a couple of hundred people do that, then that will make the podcast sustainable and I can carry on interviewing interesting guests about fascinating human rights subjects. So, Adam, what are you worried about with the new Bill of Rights? Because the new Bill of Rights keeps the, con- uh, the convention articles as a schedule, has exactly the same definition of convention rights, and still has an obligation on public authorities to give effect to those convention rights. So why, why are you worried about the new Bill of Rights? Yeah, well, I mean, you, you, you're, you're absolutely right. The new Bill of Rights um, structurally... In, in broad terms, keeps the same structure as the Human Rights Act, which keeps the which has the European Convention of Human Rights, um, the, the the version which is pretty much the same as it was in 1951 when it was drafted, with some a few edits. Keeps it in as a schedule. It says that public authorities need to give give effect to right, cannot act in a way which breaches human rights. Um, but what it, I guess I guess I, th- I I would look at the Bill of Rights bill like this. Um, that the Human Rights Act was created a, a, a road um, for a clear road for citizens to access their convention rights, their European convention rights. So if, they, if their right to life was being breached by the state, there was, whereas before you would have to swim across the ocean and get to Strasbourg um, at great cost and difficulty. Now you had a very clear road to get to your rights. And that was the point of bringing rights home, that they would be here in your local courts. And I think what this Bill of Rights bill does is it puts a a whole load of obstacles in the way of that road um, and will make it in practice a lot more difficult for people to access their rights, um, justified on the basis of parliamentary sovereignty. That, that's effectively what, what I think this bill does. Not, not a single, pro- no provision of this bill that will make it easier for people to access their rights or make the rights stronger. It will own e- each and every change to the Human Rights Act will make it more difficult to access rights. I think from one point of view, a sort of Brexiter point of view, who wants to sort of bring things home from everything which is European, this bill must be a huge disappointment. They, they, every so often they, there is a bray for uh, let's pull ourselves out of the Council of Europe, uh, let us pull out of the European Convention of Human Rights, most recently with the the, the Rwanda plane, which didn't take anybody to Rwanda. And so you will always get the political and media supporters of the government clapping and cheering the idea that we should pull ourselves out of the Council for Europe and the European Convention. This new bill doesn't go anywhere near doing that. This new bill essentially copies and pastes the core part of of the Human Rights Act. The convention articles are still there, definition is still there, the primary obligation of public authorities is still there. This must be a huge disappointment to the more extreme supporters of of the government who would like us to come out of the European Convention and from the Council for Europe. So in one way, it's a big, so what? You know, why is it, why bother repealing the old act just to recreate the core of it there's nothing being done with this bill of rights bill which couldn't be done by just amending the existing human rights act uh in 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 substance it all the changes are so secondary in nature compared to keeping the convention rights it's just a copy and paste job in certain ways but the Lord Chancellor wants to repeal the Human Rights Act. He's long committed to repealing the Human Rights Act. When he was a junior justice minister, he wanted to do it. This is his rail. He is Captain Hayhap. He wants to repeal the Human Rights Act. So we're going to repeal the Human Rights Act and then just repeat the core part of it in the Bill of Rights. And then, as you say, Adam, they, you, they're going to actually have all these spoilers, as I think of them, a list of spoilers as opposed to a Bill of Rights, which make it more difficult in a whole range of practical situations 
for a litigant, for a party, for an individual to rely on their convention rights. The only consequence of this, or the main consequence of this, must be there will be circumstances where individuals can no longer rely on their convention rights because of this new bill who could have relied on them before it with the Human Rights Act. And if that is the case, if the consequence of this Bill of Rights is to make it less easy for individuals to rely on their convention rights, they're just going to end up with more cases in Strasbourg, which is the opposite of bringing rights home, and it's the opposite of reclaiming sovereignty. So it just seems an utter pointless, as well as a mischievous bill. I, I agree. And I, and I think, I mean, look, let, let's look at a few of the, the bits of it to, to understand why, why that is. So, so one, of, one of the purposes of the Human Rights Act was to um, allow people access to their convention rights and, and also to ensure that courts would interpret convention rights in a way which was, was not determined by what Strasbourg said, what the European Court of Human Rights said, but took it, took it into account. So it would make negative judgments of the, of the European Court of Human Rights less likely because the court um, respects local um, respects states high courts um, and make sure that it you know it doesn't unnecessarily um, stir the pot as much as people think that it does I think the court is a pretty careful court on the whole um, with a few except very few exceptions so so what the court one of the things that the, one of the first things that the Bill of Rights bill does is it takes away the requirement to take into account convention law but it adds in a sort of originalist type um uh, interpretative obligation saying that a court determining any question which has arisen in connection with a convention right this is clause three must have particular regard to the text of the convention right and in interpreting the text may have regards the propriety work of the convention um, and may have regards to the development under the common law of any right that is similar to a convention right so so it's explicitly saying look back to the text of the original article and look back to the um, preparatory work, which is, I mean, I've looked at preparatory work for, for in other contexts um, under the Human Rights Convention, which is really sort of, you know, esoteric stuff. It's really not something that the European Court of Human Rights concentrates on very much because it's always seen the convention as a living instrument, as something which, um, which 80, 72 years later is going, society's fundamentally changed and the convention has to move on um uh, within the text of you know within the text of the convention as well so so it's kind of taking a, 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 a an american right-wing approach to the convention which is quite unnerving because it will mean that the court the uk courts might say well actually with lgbt rights well the t um in fact the lgb um was was never part of the original um, convention that's you know it, it just wasn't you know that th th it was never intended that um gay people would have would have equal rights because that's not how people thought of gay people in 1951 so you know that th let, let we're not going to go as far as the um, european court of human rights and all that that's going to end up doing is the european court of human rights will say no that's not how we interpret the convention you've got to um you've got to buck up and it will just create more and more conflict with the European Court of Human Rights, more and more opportunities for our politicians to say, oh, those interfering judges in Strasbourg, we've got our Bill of Rights and they and they should be just, you know, letting us do what we want. And instead, they're getting more and more involved and they're causing all these problems. It's, it's, a, it's a ludicrous proposition. It's, it's, it's ludicrous to a degree that, say, Pepper and Hart is, is, is not ludicrous. Pepper and Hart, as you know, is the obligation to look at what Parliament says as, a, as a, well, not Parliament, but the discretion to look at what Parliament says about a bill as it goes through. To actually go back all that time to preparatory stuff at the dawn of the European Convention, courts, advocates and parties are not well equipped to doing that. And it isn't, it isn't plain why it would be conclusive on any point. And also those sorts of points could go against governments as well as for governments. And then you're in the same strange yeah. situation that the government is being being hoisted by its own petard here and it's just a ridiculous circumstance and what the conservative government is missing and not all conservatives there are some conservatives who are quite insightful about this sort of thing like jesse norman and dominic grieve and whatever the human rights act is actually in many ways a very conservative piece of of legislation as i stated earlier it is an elegant compromise it doesn't attack the sovereignty of parliament at all it, 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 it's subservient to, to Parliament and it doesn't force judges to take account of the convention. It, it's 
doesn't force judges to actually apply the judgments of the European Court and to follow them in a, in, in a strict way. It just enables them to take account of, of those. And if you look at the substantive rights as well, apart from the right to life and the right against torture, all of the rights are qualified rights, which allows a public authority to interfere with those rights in, in, in circumstances where it's proportionate to do so and, and they have a legal basis. And there's very little there which a properly uh, informed conservative should object to. A lot of it there is actually a very conservative piece of legislation. And indeed, certain part elements of the state, like the security services, are quite at ease with it because what they then did after 1998 was actually put all their powers on a legal basis, worked out all their arguments and proportionality, and just then carried on doing what they could do anyway, but did so in a way which was ECHR compliant. Yeah. And, and I mean, there's, lot, there's lots else in this bill. It's almost like a shopping, shopping list or a shopping cart um, of, all the, of all the bad ideas that have been had about reforming the human rights Act over the last 15 years. Um, public protection, clause six, where a court is determining a question which has arisen over irrelevant convention rights um, and the person is subject to a custodial sentence, the court must give the greatest possible weight to the importance of reducing the risk to the public from persons who have, who have committed offences in respect of which custodial sentences have been imposed. The greatest possible yeah, weight, what, David. What does greatest possible weight mean? It means there can be no greater possible weight. <laughs> it, 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 what does that, can that mean in, 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 in a practical situation? These are just words which must look good in, 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 in the Ministry of Justice, but in a court will not be helpful at all to any party. Or seven. Um, in the court, when the court is a determining an incompatibility question in relation to the provision of an act, in order to determine that question, it's necessary to decide whether the effect of the provision um, on the way in which the convention rights are secured strikes the appropriate balance between different policy aims, different convention rights, and between the convention rights of different persons. The court must regard Parliament as having decided in passing the Act that the Act strikes an appropriate balance as between the matters mentioned above um, and give the greatest possible weight, there it is again, to the, to the principle that in a parliamentary democracy, decisions about how such a balance should be struck are properly made by Parliament. Why don't they just have, why, why don't they just have a candid provision that says before making judgment, please email the judgment to the Ministry of Justice <laughs> for approval by the Secretary of State, and then everything, then, then, then everything would be fine. It is these bells and whistles are just so irksome. They really are. They're either going to confuse a court or lead people not being to be able to rely on their convention rights properly, which will just lead to more Strasbourg case law. It just overcomplicates something which actually didn't need overcomplicating. Yes, there were problems with the Human Rights Act. Yes, there were problems which could have been dealt with by amending the Act, which is actually all the government has a mandate for. The 2019 Conservative Manifesto does not state that they will repeal the Act, Human Rights Act. Uh, the 2010 and 2015 ones did, but not the 2019 one. The, the, the manifesto commitment is only to quote, updating the Act, which means that down the road, if the House of Lords heavily amend this bill or even actually uh, vote down the bill as a whole, there is a huge question mark on whether the government can use uh, the Parliament Act to force it through or whether on, or they probably may want to, but they can't use that as a threat to make the House of Lords back down because of the so-called Salisbury Convention, that the House of Lords do not actually oppose manifesto measures. It was not in the Conservative manifesto that this act be repealed in its entirety. And, and it is difficult to see how the House of Lords should, should not amend this as appropriate as it goes through. Yes, yeah, so, so, so can, can, can we just talk about that for, for a minute, because it's, it's very important in terms of this bill, because this, this bill is being rushed through. Um, it's not being, it's not been subject to pre-legislative scrutiny, even though it's a constitutional, it's obviously a constitutional bill and it should have been, and everybody wanted it to be, um, but, but it's not. The, the Lords in, in the, in, in 
for a non-manifesto bill, the Lords can delay, um, I think for up to a year, is that right? They can they can delay it or, or, or it can end up having to be, um, to be junked in the end. But the Parliament Act, the Parliament Acts allow for the government to short circuit that. So how does that work in practice? Well, I haven't got the Parliament Acts in front of me, but if memory serves, uh, if it's rejected by the Lords and in the next parliamentary session, it's introduced by the government in identical terms, then it can pass to 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 uh, enactment. I remember this being a practical issue with one of the Brexit pieces of legislation under Theresa May, and she was undermined by the fact that she had insisted on a, a, a two-year parliamentary session, so they couldn't actually go around and rely on the Parliament Act because it had to be in successive sessions. But uh, yes, the government could rely on the Parliament Act, uh, even though it's not a, a manifesto commitment, but they will not be able to cow the Lords down and by saying, look, you've got to vote allow us to repeal this because it was in the manifesto because it wasn't the only thing in the manifesto was updating the existing act we're midterm we're about halfway through the maximum length of this current parliament so it is possible that this bill of rights will uh reach the statute book and that the human rights act will be repealed and and captain hayhab will have uh succeeded in this sequel to moby dick of actually getting there at the end but What's the point? And this is, you know, just two final points here. This is a legislative priority for the Ministry of Justice. The Ministry of Justice is not a big department. It only has scarce ministerial time. It only has scarce departmental resources. And it is devoting its time to this ludicrous bill. Even though, as we both know, uh, the criminal justice system is in crisis. Uh, the prison system is also either in crisis or near crisis. Civil justice is all over the place. We have huge problems across the whole area of, of where over which the Department of Justice presides. And what are they? What are they obsessing about? They're obsessing about repealing the the, the human human rights act. It's you can understand how bridges were built over the River Cry like this. You really can. It just seems such a strange, counterproductive obsession at a time where the Ministry of Justice really should be devoting its scarce time and resources to far more urgent things like the justice system. And to top it all, the sheer portentousness of the name, the Bill of Rights. I said earlier, although you disagreed, that... The Human Rights Act was a portentous title, a provocative title, and it should have had a far more boring title and thereby be less controversial. But that at least followed the modern practice of calling legislation acts. This Bill of Rights says on the face of the bill that it is to be known when it's passed as the Bill of Rights even though the practical effect of almost every provision in the Bill of Rights is to actually make it more difficult for people to rely on their rights. It is not to be called the Bill of Rights Act, it is called the Bill of Rights, making it one of the very few pieces of legislation not to have an act at the end and putting it alongside such significant pieces of legislation like the Statute of Westminster. This is so, so, so stupid and 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 ridiculous because it isn't that significant a piece of legislation even on its own terms it's a piece of legislation which is pretending to be significant uh, when in fact it's just curtailing rights and, and and to try and and mimic the famous bill of rights of 1688 which does provide fundamental rights like for example the ability uh, of, of 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 parliamentarians to discourse freely and so on uh it it, it it is it's difficult to find the vocabulary to express just how utterly pathetic a piece of legislation this is if it has to be known as the Bill of Rights. And so what we have here is politicking pretending to be lawmaking. There were problems with the Human Rights Act. It was never supposed to be a really important piece of legislation. It was only ever going to be an elegant compromise. But this government has managed to get out of that something which is fundamentally ridiculous.
Yeah, I mean, I, I totally agree, and and I think what 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 this I I find I think the word that really comes to my mind is embarrassing. I think it's an embarrassing piece of legislation. It's embarrassing for advanced democracy to call something a bill of rights, which which actually creates obstacles to claiming rights and makes it harder to get rights. It's, it's, I'd say it was Orwellian if that phrase hadn't been overused um, too much. But, you know, there is an element of the, the name being Orwellian because it, it is the opposite of what it says it does. Um, it, it is a political um, and it's a political, political exercise. And, and when you read the, the, the Human Rights Act um, preparatory documents and the, the white paper and all of that, you can see that whatever you think about the government at, at that time, this was a really serious exercise in improving the, the lot of people who couldn't access their rights. It was a really serious internet. There was an international comparison done of all of the relevant um, and potentially comparable Bill of Rights um, or you know, whatever you call them, constitutional instruments. And there was a thoughtful compromise reached by, yeah, these were, and also these were lefty lawyers, particularly. They were, they were liberals. Um, Lord Leicester, the, 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 um, the barristers at Blackstone who were involved, um, 11 King's Bench Walk and Tony, Tony Blair's um, you know, ex-chambers. These were not um, lefties, they were liberals, and they saw the power of a liberal compromise um, for bringing in something which would help lots of people, which is what it ended up doing. And and this exercise is the opposite. It's not, I mean, they we've not even mentioned, they did a, an independent review. They appointed their own panel um, led by Lord Justice Gross to decide whether the Human Rights Act needed reforming. And the independent review came back and said, yes, a little bit, but not very much. And they completely ignored it. I don't think there's a single proposal made by that independent review of, of individuals they handpicked that they've taken up. They've just completely disregarded it. And that is absolutely outrageous. If you think about this is about the fundamental rights of, of people who, who live in this country and they've, you know, treating it, they're treating them like they're a, a bit of electioneering. It is, it, 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 it is at once both needlessly harmful and utterly trivial. And as, as, as I said in a, a recent piece, uh, uh, it is the legislative equivalent of lounging on a sun lounger whilst Afghanistan falls. I think with that um, sunny but depressing metaphor, let's um, let's call it to a close. David, thank you so much for having this discussion. We can perhaps do an update once the Bill of Rights bill starts winding its way through Parliament um, and, and hopefully being amended or even better being rejected. Um, no doubt there will also be some fight, a fight over the Salisbury Convention, which I agree with you um, doesn't apply in this case. Um, so thanks very much again, David, and speak to you again. Thanks for inviting me, Adam. It was a pleasure. So thank you very much to David Allen Green. Um, if you want more information about the podcast, please go to www.betterhumanpodcast.com where you can also support it. Please also do leave positive reviews and subscribe where you can. Thank you. Bye-bye.